Hello and welcome to Change My Mind. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, founder and CEO of the Depolarization Project based at Stanford in California. Today I'm joined by Laura Osborne, Campaigns and Corporates Affairs Director at London First. Hello Ali, it's lovely to be here having a chat. Yeah, hi, are you in London today, Laura? I am, yeah, I've got a nice little spot on Charterhouse Square this evening, which is rather nice. Oh. Sounds very lovely. That's deep in the city of London. Um, and we're also joined for today's podcast by Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Ali. Alex is a uh, behavioural scientist and conservative politician in the UK. She'll be with us for the podcast, but not for the debrief, because she's currently out fighting an election on the doorsteps. Today's podcast is sponsored by Stanford University's MSX program. The MSX program offers experienced leaders a one-year full-time accelerated master's degree at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Students, known as Sloan Fellows, come from all over the world. It's rigorous, immersive, inspiring, and transforms careers. I should know because in 2017, I was lucky enough to be one of them. And it's where the idea for the depolarization project and this podcast were born. For more information, visit gsb.stanford.edu slash msx. So, Laura, today we've been joined by Sarah Sewell, who's a professor at Stanford, and she talks us through uh, bits that are happening in workplaces, admits how she got it wrong about a big fundamental of education in the 21st century. And we have a really unlikely shout out to Eminem, which I know I wasn't expecting. Were you? No, no. Taken totally by surprise there. <laughs> also, I was it was a, a deep knowledge of late 1990s rap songs that I did not know that I have, to be honest with you. Always impressive. Um, but we've just I know we've just given a quick tease for our guest who is Professor Sarah Sewell. She's the Mogridge Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Her major interests are organizational theory, social movements, and political sociology. She's written two recent books, the first with Cambridge University Press, Contention and Corporate Social Responsibility, and the second with Norton, a primer on social movements. She served on a number of boards of non-profit organization, is a member of the board advisors at Stanford's celebrated D-School, and she's taught students in many of Stanford's most celebrated programs, including the Center of Advancement of Women's Leadership. In 2016, Sarah became the GSB's Senior Associate Dean. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd love to begin by just asking you a bit about your research at Stanford. And you focused on the most recently the impact that protests can have on election results. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for asking. <clears throat> so uh, we published this paper, which was on many, many years of data, largely historic data. And uh, the paper looks at public protest in the United States and the way in which that has um, influences on elections. And in particular, what we find in the paper is that protests that articulates what we traditionally think of as left-leaning kinds of issues um, are associated with, at the sort of congressional district level, changes in the electoral outcomes such that Democrats are more likely to be elected in those districts. And similarly, actually, or conversely, on the right side of the political spectrum, kind of typically um, uh, issues that are associated with conservatives are more likely to be associated with um, Republicans being being elected. And then the second finding in the paper, and again, this is on both sides of the political spectrum, which I think is important, uh, is that 
these protests are also associated with quality challengers entering races. So, for example, what that means is challengers who have some experience in politics are more likely to enter races on, again, either side of the political spectrum. And so I think that part of why that paper is so um, important is that seems to be exactly what we saw in the midterm elections in the United States in November. That is that we both saw that many more women and many more Democrats were elected following, you know, two years of incredibly high level of protest, left-leaning protests around particularly women's issues. We saw a lot more Democratic women, of course, being elected and brand new challengers entering those races. Um, Sarah, can you, sorry, I was, I was going to jump in and sorry and ask, how do you define uh, a protest? Oh, great question. So the way we defined it in this particular project and the data set that it comes from is a uh, protest event has to be public so uh, or open to the public. So if it's inside some kind of an, an organization like a university or a business, as long as it's open to the public, um, then it's considered a public protest event or outside in the street, of course. And it has to have more than two people. So it's got to be a collective uh, gathering of folks. And there has to be some kind of articulation of a claim, some sort of wish for change or resisting change. So we, we and we have that piece of it because we want to make sure that we dis, uh, sort of distinguish from other kinds of public gatherings like street fairs or other kinds of um, events that don't aren't, aren't making a claim about change. Okay, so some kind of call, call to action? Absolutely. And so I'm just wondering, do you think, did your paper look back as far as before this most recent midterm, so for example, with the Tea Party. So our paper actually was historic in nature, and it covered the period in the United States, 1960 through 1995. So it didn't even... Um, come up to the Tea Party. However, the finding I think that we, you know, I think the findings that we present in the paper are completely consistent with what happened with the Tea Party, completely consistent with what happened in the midterm um, elections in, uh, in, in November. And just to kind of follow on from that, the obvious question if it stops in 1995 is, do you have any hunch and I'm not going to ask you for more than that because you're an academic. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> of what impact or effect the internet might have had. Oh, I think that that's, I actually think it's a great question. I don't have a solid answer for it, but I think that if anything, this amplifies it, right? Except for, let me let me clarify that. So, you know, when we were looking at public protest, and it's not actually um, a mistake that we finished that in 1995 or we stopped the data collection in 1995. In part, we did that because this was sort of pre-internet era and the data come from news media reports of protest events. So once we have, of course, um, you know, the internet, there's a lot more access possibly to too much too much information that we might have. So I would expect that that would be an amplifying effect on what we find. So therefore, the the results that we present in the actual paper, which are historic, would be much smaller than what we saw, for example, in the Tea Party or in the uh, midterm elections just because there's more data available. Now, I say that, and then the caveat there is I don't actually have a hypothesis about what 
how fake news might influence this. So considering that there could be fake news on various kinds of protest events, both um, distorting what those protesters protest events are about, or even um, protest events that uh, that didn't actually take place, but for some reason seem to be um, covered in various kinds of news sources. That would be, uh, that, that could be sort of a, a, a problem, if you will, for our results. How much difference does it make in terms of having one very simple call to action versus a bigger, longer wish list in terms of the impact that it has? I think that's a terrific question to ask. In this particular paper that Ali was referring to, we didn't actually look at uh, the sort of clarity of the message that was sent. But in some other work that I've done, that's exactly what we've looked at. And to kind of distill the findings from these other papers, two things really seem to matter in terms of the kind of politics of information. One is the sort of size of the signal. So how big is the protest event? How much media attention did the protest event get? Um, Was there sort of, you know, any use of 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 violence or something that would be sort of make make the protest event more newsworthy than it might be and so on. So strength of protest events really matters. The signal, I mean, the the strength of the signal. But then in other work that we've looked at on um, using, again, the same data set, but looking specifically at women's issues in the United States, we also wanted to look at this question that you ask about clarity. And the finding that we have in that paper is, I think, what you were probably in your, what your intuition was on that. And that's that single issue, clear protest events um, have a, a much more, a, a stronger likelihood of response. And this is, again, looking at congressional response um, to these protest events. I kind of talk about this as the, the paradox of hybridity. And what I mean by that is that if your goal as a protest organizer is to get a massive number of people out and to send a really big signal, then and that's sort of one strategy. That's terrific because that is a strategy that is likely to um, get issues on the agenda, get lawmakers to be thinking about um you know, what what the uh, constituents, what the people actually want to happen. So that's one one sort of piece of strategy. But if you, as an organization, a protest organization or organizer, are more concerned with actually getting a piece of legislation passed or an organizational policy enacted, uh, it's better to have a focused kind of ask um, and pr- to provide the sort of most clarity that you can around what the ask really is. And sometimes I think, you know, we might think of um, recent protest events, such as the Women's March um, uh, in 2017. And I was there and I have some terrific photos of that march. And I had, it was an unbelievably impactful march and event in my life. But when I think about um, the actual clarity of the message that was sent, there is some clarity that people were there you know, to to protest the um, election of of President Trump, but also to uh, articulate women's rights. But if you actually think about what concretely came out of the Women's March or can be connected directly to the Women's March, it's harder, I think, to come up with um, an answer to that question. I mean, I optimistically say, but look, I just published this paper on, you know, election, the midterm elections. That's something that concretely came out of the Women's March. But but of, of course, we don't measure that in the paper. So, you know, that's speculation. That's really interesting because thinking from a UK perspective, the events that really stick in my head is or stop the Iraq war or scrap tuition fees, all of which have very clear calls to action. And they are negative. That's true. 
Yes. And I think what's interesting about that, too, and it's funny you mentioned, you know, the 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 UK in particular during the Occupy movement. I happened to be in London and I took pictures of the Occupy London protest, which I used for many years on slides because part of what we saw, at least I saw when I was visiting the um, the encampment was this multitude of issues on various, uh, you know, posters and so on. And so I took a picture of it to say, look, this was, there's, there's a lot going on here. And yes, you know, the tagline has is about income inequality. There are a lot of people who are using this as a stage for many, many issues. And the ask really isn't all of that clear. And Sarah, our, um, I'm interested in our in your point of view on one of our previous guests, Steve Martin. So he came on, he's a behavioral scientist, and he was talking about the importance of the messenger in influencing and changing other people's behaviors. So his key point was that the message is the messenger. So does the, does the leader or... Um, I guess, kind of human face of a protest. Does it matter to its success in your research or experience? Well, so I haven't actually researched that myself, so I'm kind of reluctant to to speak a lot about that. But I will sort of point out that I think that there is some literature, again, not literature that I've contributed much to, which is... Um, you know, on the the kind of issue of message framing and so on. And some of that points to a similar, not probably as sophisticated as, um, as, as Martin's research might be and thoughts might be on this, but does point to a similar kind of finding. And that's that, for example, if you have, um, women speaking out on the rights of women or perhaps the rights of children, it's a highly, it's a much more resonant message than would be if somebody else were speaking on their behalf, for example. So again, not literature that I've contributed to, but there's quite a nice body of research on uh, on framing as it's known in the social movement research, if somebody would like to, um, if any of your listeners would like to dig into it. Oh, and we will definitely provide some extra reading on that for people alongside That's it. That's terrific. <laughs> Um, Sarah, there's one bit that I wanted to to pick up where we look at, I guess, polarization and the impact that protest might have on that. And I suppose there's, there's two sides to that, which is, um, one, are there protests that you think have been particularly successful at changing people's minds? And I guess maybe more in the population at large rather than always with with lawmakers. And secondly, like another previous guest, Tali Sharot, who runs the Effective Brain Unit in um, UCL in London and publishes a lot with Harvard and MIT as well. She was talking about studies she'd done which showed exposure to messages that almost made you feel uncomfortable or made you stupid or which you disagreed with um, drove you further into holding your own view. And in her case, that was applied to climate change and with climate change deniers. And do you have any concerns about maybe whether protest and protest taking strong movements might be contributing to polarization. Well, I'm going to take a different tact at that, and 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 I'm going to refer to a sort of long-standing finding, if you will. Not not I haven't looked at this myself in research on social movements, but there's this finding which is known as the radical flank effect. And what essentially that research shows is that if you have a very radical. Uh, protest group or set of protest events. And, but what I mean by that is either really far left or really, really far light, right? What ends up happening is people that are more moderate look really reasonable. So in, in a sense, if you kind of radically, you know, um, let's take the left side of the political spectrum, if you've got a really radical left wing, you know, set of protest events and or organizations, more moderate groups end up looking reasonable and, um, 
targets are more likely to negotiate with them. And so in a sense, it actually helps in terms of, if we think about, it's not about changing opinion so much, but it helps in terms of outcomes to have these kind of yeah. far, you know, polarized, uh, polarized group. And there's a similar effect, actually, that one of my colleagues here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business has reported, um, his name is Keith Crable, um, for many, many years on thinking about ways in which at least Congress in the U.S., um, there's, there's this sort of deviation to the the, the median voter in Congress for, for, I think, similar reasons. These polar opposites end up making the middle look much more reasonable. And um, that doesn't answer your question so much about, say, about the, the uh, social psychological <laughs> effect, but that's because I'm not a social psychologist. No, and so I don't know that literature very and this, well. And this is fine. And one thing we've definitely learned talking to academics is they're very reluctant. They value their own expertise and others' expertise, so they don't go there. Yes. But I, I guess if I, if I can push a little bit, which um, Sarah taught me and probably is familiar with me doing this, um, <laughs> which is normally I would traditionally I'd agree with you that's exactly how politics has played out but that certainly doesn't feel like how it's playing out at the minute that you know in both the US and the UK and a number of other places but let's pick those two with first past the post um, systems you know what's actually happened is radical views are pulling people out and they're not making people there's no little reward for being the rational person in the middle you know electorally or in terms of communication or just your life day to day and I, I wondered if you had any ideas on what might have triggered that change, so if you agreed with it, yes, I do agree. By the way, with the change, and and I think we will see, um, we will see in upcoming elections if we go back to the sort of politics of normal, where the you know sort of rational middle seems to actually make the most or, or get the most leverage, and. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of people who have hypothesized all kinds of reasons why this has happened from the, you know, sort of mass media and the role that, uh, you know, various kinds of social media have played on this to the way in which, um, the at least in the U.S. and I assume the U.K., that people, um, there's, there's just been a geographic uh, movement of people so that they move near people and they're near people who share their values and there isn't much um, uh sort of opportunity for, you know, exchange about other kinds of ideas. The media, of course, have uh, been, you know, playing into this. There's all kinds of reasons out there, and I don't think I have much more to add to what those reasons are. I wish I could tell you, here's exactly why it happened, but but I don't have much more to add than everybody else out there. <laughs> yeah, mm. and they're particularly hard one to undo that. Absolutely, absolutely. Sarah, can I, can I jump in so, and ask you a question about your recent HBR article? Sure. So, yeah, great. Thank you. So, listeners, I was saying before we formally started recording that I uh, recently read an article by Sarah in HBR called um, Culture Change in Organisations Can't Be Changed Through a Mandate. It has to be done through a movement. I thought it was a brilliant uh, perspective on corporate culture change and one that I hadn't read or was aware of before. So basically, the gist was, uh, you know, we often think of movements as starting off with a call to action, but actually your research suggests that they start with emotion. So kind of a, a diffuse dissatisfaction with the status quo and a broad sense that the current uh, that the current status quo isn't working. So it made me, I guess it raised two questions for me. So one one would be, um, what would be your, your top tip? or advice for starting a successful movement in the workplace? And then second, um, how do you cultivate those emotions to get a successful movement on topics that are inherently a bit dull or workplaces that are a bit 
they're a bit dull. <laughs> Which is a little bit less exciting. A bit less exciting, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking corporate culture in the workplace, you know, big change management programs so are typically very dull. Yes, yes, yes. That's a very funny question and funny way of putting it. So a couple of things I think which, you know, the sort of research shows on this. And one is, you know, leaders, the top leadership can um, and often does want to sort of mandate a cultural change, right? And they can do that and they can be sort of open to cultural change. But fundamentally, cultural change is going to be um, uh, enacted through a set of behaviors that the people within the organization uh, take on and embrace. So it really does. That's what we mean when we say, you know, this really has to start from below. And they often start at the periphery with very passionate people who decide that there is a um, a change in the culture that they so desire. And I think what we've seen happen is a couple of things. One is there's this sort of way in which those individuals are able to to demonstrate very small wins by very creatively framing and telling the story of what has happened, why it's important, and what others should do. So it's sort of the classic what, so what, now what, and cleverly communicating to the rest of the organization the answers to that question. And that gets people, other people, in a sense, the the, uh, message diffuses and people get on board. Now, what we don't talk about in that article, but what I also believe is that there is a need for the leaders to um, also embrace the cultural change and to enable it, but that fundamentally it really does need to be um, started and uh, created from below and from the periphery and it kind of diffuses diffuses in. And, you know, a few very uh, excited and committed folks who are good about, you know, demonstrating quick wins and um, are able to kind of frame their message in a way that tells the, the what, so what, now what, and brings people um, right on board with them, I think is really where we see the most successful cultural changes. I think that makes sense, you know, as well as being intuitive, because if you're part of creating what that culture is, then you feel like it belongs to you and you want to champion it. Often what could be a bit of a challenge is where the culture is, as you say, dictated to, um, or a change that's made without the time to let it build up and grow or to engage wider staff, you know, apart from the leadership. That's exactly right. You know, it's sort of, you know, getting the, the buy-in um, is very important in a cultural change um, initiative and and that it won't work unless everybody, you know, have or, or most people are buying into what this is. Sarah, we ask every guest who comes on our show um, <clears throat> to tell us about a time that they've changed their mind on an issue as why. And I should say, because obviously our listeners can't see Sarah. Normally people look a bit anxious at this point. Sarah is grinning widely, which makes me think she might have a great one for us. Yeah, I have a really, really good one. And so Allie knows this because she was a student, but she also um, <clears throat> knows that I've been at this profession, at, at being an educator since I finished my PhD in 1995. So that's a lot of years of teaching. And uh, one of the things that I think, I think one of the things that I have completely done an about face on is the world of online education. And to understand this, I think you have to go back to around 2006, 2007, when there were the sort of the growth of of uh, sort of massive online courses, right? Um, and you know, we we used to call it MOOC mania back then when we thought about these um, you know online courses. And I think what most of the, that first generation of courses they were famous for getting a ton of people to sign up, but nobody ever actually finished these courses. And 
for years, I completely, you know, sort of disregarded this whole online education movement and thought there was no way I would ever participate in this. I, I, I can't believe that there's a substitute for in-class experiences with a professor and with the other um, students in the classroom and so on. Well, it turns out that the Graduate School of Business here at Stanford some years ago decided they were going to launch an online uh, program, certificate program called LEAD. And some of my colleagues tried to encourage me to do a course, and I kept sort of dodging and hiding and, you know, not answering their calls and emails. And then finally, with enough nudging on their part and enough, you know, sort of you ask the question about cultural change, demonstrating some of their courses and showing me what these things looked like and showing that you could, in fact, actually get um, massive kinds of uh, uh, collaboration and discussion on these courses, and they could be really high quality with terrific graphics and other kinds of things and really fun, um, engaging kinds of, uh, of exercises. After I started seeing, again, these quick wins and seeing how this could actually work and then watching how students were um, engaging on the platform completely changed my mind. And so I reluctantly did a course, and now I'm happy to say that I've now created two other additional courses, and I'm completely sold that this can work if it's done right. And I think that we kind of nailed it with our lead program here at the Graduate School of Business. I think we figured out exactly the sweet spot, and we you know, have incredibly high completion rates of any of our courses, and it's just been a huge success, and I've changed my mind completely. <laughs> That's fantastic. So there were two things from that story that leapt out at me. And the first one was when you were talking about your colleagues kept trying to persuade you. And rather than telling them that you just thought they were wrong, you avoided them. And what what was it that was behind that decision to avoid rather than talk? I think it's such a great, you know, I think that's such a great question because I think I just, I was afraid, completely afraid of what they were going to ask me to do. How much time is this going to take? I don't believe in it anyway. And I think it's just easier for me to just, you know, ignore your emails on this. <laughs> but I was afraid, fear. Yeah. And and what what was it you... What, because I know you as a very assertive woman who's sure of her ground and, you know, was it that you were afraid of telling them that you didn't want to do it or you were afraid of the tech or something else? I was all of the, all of the above. The whole thing just seemed so foreign to me and fundamentally I didn't believe that it could ever work. And, and it wasn't until they started to sort of show me what these courses actually looked like that I started to realize, well, that actually looks very different from what my preconceived notion was. Let's let's give it a go. It's something quite experiential. Um, mm. Yes. In terms of the, yes, yes. Mm. Sorry, Laura, were you going to jump in? I, I was just going to say, I think that's often the case, isn't it? Especially if you're thinking about how much time it's going to take. So even if you do like it, then you think you're going to have to do it. <laughs> so it can be easier to just avoid it in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And and it did take a lot of time. So, <laughs> but it was all worth it. And I, you know, I like to also say that what's one of the best things about this experience, and I think I speak for many of my colleagues who have developed these courses for this certificate program, um, it has enriched our in-person teaching because you, mm. you know, you've got a new constraint. This is going to be an online course and constraint really is uh, the sort of, uh, uh, it breeds innovation when you're constrained in certain ways. And so it's this, um, Terrific experience. And have you taken any of your colleagues on the same journey that you were on? 
I have. Absolutely. Yes, I have. Uh, happy to say that I have recruited some of the most recalcitrant of my colleagues to do courses now for the LEAD program. So we have great courses on motivating others, communication. Uh, we have an improv course online, a whole lot of different um, courses that I think are going to be amazingly successful. And did you find the fact that you changed your mind was helpful in being able to persuade them? Absolutely. Because I could tell the story about being really reluctant to do this and exactly how impactful the experience was. I guess in your own way, it was a very mini protest where you had to have a very clear message and then you... <laughs> Absolutely. Nice connection. Very nice connection. <laughs> yeah, listeners, for a tip, if you take a class with Sarah, put that kind of thing in her um, in your essay and you'll get a good mark. <laughs> Um, and how has that affected anything else that you might previously have been almost slightly scared of, as you said? Or avoided. Yes. Avoided. I'll give you an example because, you know, I, you know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, what else have I changed my mind on? And his, you know, like, what were the kinds of conditions under that? And I'll give you one that I think is really funny. I just thought of this one this morning. Um, so uh, many of your listeners and you may know the artist Eminem. And most people do at this point. It turns out he's like, almost as old as I am, which, you know, is really interesting. But when, you know, he first sort of started making music in the early 90s, I can remember a student telling me, this person is unbelievably, unbelievably brilliant. And this person is this amazing lyricist. And this person is so incredibly talented. And, you know, I'd heard a song or two and I thought, I just really, I don't get this at all. And sometime in the last 10 years or so, probably with the, uh, you know, attempt to try to, you know, do different kinds of exercises and so on, I, uh, and sharing a playlist with my young, young teenage son, I had a lot of Eminem that was playing. And I am happy to report that that student was right. <laughs> this person is an unbelievably um, talented lyricist. And so that, that I, and, and I, I don't know if that person, that student back then changed my mind on this, but I do think that it stuck with me because I remember thinking, how, how, I don't get this. Why am I not getting this? And now I'm, you know, I'd like to call that person and say, you were right. Well, hopefully they'll be listening to this and yes, we'll, we'll let them know. Go. And it's really interesting because Eminem's been on his own change himself, hasn't he? Yeah, From being, absolutely. you know, quite a, a tricky customer, let's put it yes. that way, because I don't have research in front of me and I'm slightly worried about libel laws. Um, uh, but to actually, you know, it is public that he had a violent relationship with his wife yes. and to apologizing to that and actually Absolutely. writing about it in a way that I think is probably quite persuasive to encourage other men Absolutely. to change their minds right. as well. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, there's some sort of, you know, authenticity in the uh, in, in the signal that that sends, I think, which yeah. is probably deeply resonant. Yeah. Um, Laura and Alex, do you have any final questions? Yes. Well, thank you. This was really fun. I'm glad that you invited me to be part I, of it. I do have one final question oh, you before do? you leave, okay. which um, we didn't include yeah, on your brief, but we've started asking to people recently, and is your opportunity to be potentially evil to somebody else. <laughs> Sarah is smiling and grinning. <laughs> which is, if you could nominate somebody else and you'd love to know what they changed their mind on, who would it be and why? Does it have to be somebody here at Stanford? Oh, no, no, anywhere, no. It can be anywhere. Just, just bear in mind, uh, okay. we might email them and say, Sarah told us that we yes. should ask you this question. Great. Uh, <laughs> I would say, um, and this is, you know, sort of top of mind at the at the particular moment, I would say Alex Rodriguez. 
the baseball player who has really been doing, I had the opportunity because he was on campus um, some months ago and I had the opportunity to talk to him a little bit about what he has been doing in particular to promote women in sports, in the sports industry, but also in his real estate um, uh, ventures as well. And I think that's somebody who we some years ago wouldn't necessarily associate with being a true champion of women's rights. And um, I think I would nominate Alex Rodriguez. Well, that's a high aim for us. Sarah, thank you so much for joining thank us you, today. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. Lovely to be Lovely with you. Lovely to Coaches. meet Thanks. you. Bye. Bye. So that brings to an end um, the part where Sarah, Laura, uh, myself and Alex were all talking. And now Laura and I are going to digest exactly what Sarah said. There were a couple of things that really struck me, um, Laura, but I I wondered if anything stood out to you to start with. I think as a comms person, um, thinking about the clarity of message, I know it sounds pretty obvious, but uh, I think when we talked to Sarah at the beginning about, you know, what happens when you've got one really clear call, but also the impact of that being framed negatively, because, you know, thinking of press and media, you always know that a bad news story sells better. And so I suppose it makes sense, although it's slightly depressing. <laughs> that's also the case when you come to a kind of clear protesting or obviously campaigning ask. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely, and how that plays out in polarization in that mm. obviously what unites one group of people tends to define others as against it as well. Um, and does it push people further apart? I'm, I'm really struck by a friend who's actually an advisor to this project, who's a, a Trump supporter. And she went on the women's march thinking that she'd be welcome because she's a woman and she thought agreed with many of the things that they were campaigning for and found that she was the only Trump supporter there and actually that she was quite unwelcome and people were hostile to her. And I suppose it's really given me pause for thought about the downsides of single issue movements, Yeah, you know, um, and how they can exclude people um, as well as try and unite people against them. No, I think that's, I think that's right. But it's funny, isn't it? That, you know, I think you think when you're campaigning for something that you'd welcome anybody who would support your cause and make you more likely to, you know, land on the right side of the argument. But I think it's interesting in practice that that's not really always the case that actually, as you say, in the example of your friend, you want people like you to think the same thing and that actually it's quite polarizing um, in and of itself. Yeah. And I'm really struck of, you know, if Alex was here, she'd be talking about in-group and out-group hate. And that actually, once you've settled that someone isn't part of your in-group and with you and identifies with an issue, that they're part of the out-group. Even if there's things that come across that challenge that, you know, like Kat wanting to be able to go to um, the Women's March and, and really enjoy it and feel like she was at home there. And she wasn't able to. Yeah. And I think you see and that, I think, don't you? You see that often um, in the workplace as well. You know, when you're, um, you know, under a lot of pressure to get on board with something, for example, and if you get on board quickly, it's like, great, you're in. And then sometimes if you have questions or you're not part of it straight away, that's viewed as a, a negative. So I, I think it's interesting how often that's, you know, part of our day-to-day lives as well as when we're doing something a bit more, you know, um, high profile or high, you know, engagement like a protest. Yeah. And I think that's, that ties really neatly to some of the other points that Alex was talking to Sarah about with how leaders could and should respond to movements and to questioning and 
what that, you know, it, it's a fairly natural response sometimes for people when when an idea they've put forward is attacked to try and become defensive. But actually being open to that feedback might help you improve it. Or even being, to tie it back to the, the theme of the podcast, open to the fact that you might be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And you made me think of something then actually, um, going back to Maggie Neal's podcast about part of that is accepting that it's not a popularity contest for you or your ideas, that some of your ideas will be better than others and some will benefit very much from challenge and, you know, being a bit tested and that that's not a personal process. You know, it is different to, um, or perhaps could or should be different to, uh, feeling like someone is criticizing you. Um, and that that's quite a, it's quite a big change to make when you think about what kind of leader you want to be. Yeah. And I think particularly leaders under pressure, it's harder to maintain that position. And well, there's quite a bit of evidence to, to support that, which we'll put in the show notes that accompany this. Um, you know, what conditions do you need to make sure are in place as a leader to be open to reflection? Um, yeah, abs- because it's, it's very difficult to do so. Absolutely. And something you flagged Ali about, um, you know, how difficult it also can be when you are, uh, charged with leading something that isn't 100% aligned with your views or in fact that you actively disagree with um that's quite a that's quite a challenge in and of itself as well well yeah and what, what one thing that really stood out to me and what Sarah was talking about when she said changing her mind on education was it was once she was okay to admit that she'd been scared and she found it all a bit intimidating, which is is a very difficult thing for people to admit to, actually. Um, you know, the temptation is always to come up with some other kind of excuse, even <laughs> if it's obvious to all apparent around you that <laughs> some new technology is just slightly intimidating and you don't really understand Whereas it. Whereas you're like, no, 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 it's completely is- awful and I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oops, actually <laughs> know, it turns out I can't use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's something obviously for a lesson for designers there and, you know, about adoption and how, how it works. But... Um, was how having a positive experience and the importance of lived experience to changing her into becoming an evangelist and becoming comfortable with online learning and how she then had been able to persuade some of her colleagues. So it really does tie into this message and messenger thing that Steve was, Steve Martin was talking to us about in a previous podcast yeah. too. No, um, I agree. You know, and, I and I'm struck on... Sometimes you end up being... Um... And I'm not saying this is this is the the case for Sarah, but you can be a bit sniffy about things that you're not, as you say, 100% comfortable with, and 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 be critical of them. And then I think, as you know, as you say, when you directly experience it and see the benefits, you can you can quite you can change your mind. I thought she articulated yeah, and, well, that and really it, nicely. Yeah, it's a it's a less um, academic point, but I'm reminded of Jo Swinson, the MP, when she told us about how she taught herself to try and like broccoli um, by, <laughs> by, by eating it and then realising it wasn't too bad and then realising that she liked it, you know. And that's, a long, that's a big journey that, you know, I, I don't someone's been through a similar self, <laughs> a mother self, two children, self-experiment yeah. with fish because I was brought up in a household where everyone hates fish and that was, you know, the rules. Um, so I never tried it. So I tried it as an adult it tastes really strong if you've never tasted fish before. But I thought, I don't want my children not to eat fish just because I don't understand fish. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I've been through a similar <laughs> similar development process. <laughs> the final thing that really struck me that for listeners, I should let them know that you're going to be in the show notes is where 
Sarah talked about people engaging effectively online and she'd not had faith in that. There's been quite a lot of research around the conditions where that can come to be the case. And it's normally where they've had some positive interaction on something in common to start with. Um, so to take a, an, a, an example where maybe they've identified that they support the same football team or they've worked on a different project together, then people find it easier to have a healthy disagreement. Um, and we'll be interested to hear from listeners whether they agree with that and that that chimes accord with their own experiences too. Um, Laura, was there anything else that really struck you about Sarah's uh, interview that you wanted to dig into? Well, there was lots that struck me about it, but I'm guessing in the context of people changing their mind, we should keep it there. <laughs> yes, probably. Although uh, the main thing, apart from the subject matter that struck me about Sarah's interview, was how delightfully polite she was all the way through as well. <laughs> it was just a lovely interviewee. <laughs> Oh, she's fantastic. And that's if any other interviewees are listening to this, you are also all our favourites. Um, she is fa- she is a great teacher and it's a huge privilege to be taught by her, which I guess links us very neatly back, though inadvertently on Laura's part, but definitely deliberately on mine, to our sponsor's message. So this episode of Change My Mind was brought to you by our sponsors, Stanford's University's MSX program, which was where I met Sarah. The program offers experienced leaders a one-year full-time accelerated master's degree at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. You can find out more information about it by visiting gsb.stanford.edu slash msx. We'd like to thank Caroline Crampton, our wonderful producer, for helping us produce the show today. Uh, you can find out more about the Depolarization Project at depolarizationproject.com. And finally, we'd like to say thank you to Kevin McLeod, whose Dreams Become Real is the music that you'll hear playing us in and playing us out. Do join us next week. <laughs>